This is a Solitaire Media Originals podcast. Hello, welcome to the Galway podcast. This is Fender Jackson. I am talking to you on the 10th of April 2023, and this is the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. The Good Friday Agreement, also known as the Belfast Agreement, was a peace deal and it ended about 30 years of conflict between the Catholic Nationalist Republican people and the Protestant Unionist Loyalist people. The agreement was really the work of genius, bravery and hope and hours before it it looked like it wasn't going to happen. Tony Blair even was writing a speech saying how they haven't been able to deliver, but it's the fork in the road, it's not the end of the road. And there's a line going around a lot at the time saying nothing's agreed until everything's agreed. And there was so much to tie down, so many loose ends, as I say, so much hope. It couldn't have happened unless everybody who played their part did play their part. Tony Blair and Bertie Ahern, Jerry Adams, Martin McGuinness, David Trimble, John Hume, Mo Mullum, Seamus Mallon, Breeze Rogers. They're just people out of the top of my head. Chris Patton, the ex-governor of Hong Kong, he was in charge of changing the police in Northern Ireland. He did a fantastic job. There's just so many people involved in what was an amazing piece of political magnificence. Anyway, 25 years on and we're enjoying a fantastic piece. There's still problems, but these events are few and far between, thankfully. I've wanted to do this podcast for a long time because I found that there's a lot of misunderstanding and lack of understanding in Galway and all over the Republic really from the conversations I've been having about what Northern Ireland is about, what happened before, during and after the Good Friday Agreement. And through conversations people are telling me it's because it's too confusing, there's oversaturation and it's ancient history. And you know, everybody's correct whenever they say that. I lived through it. I was born in the early to mid-70s and I left Northern Ireland in 96. So I've only lived in Northern Ireland during the Troubles, 23 years of it. And it was horrific, absolutely horrific to have done that. It's very easy for somebody 200 miles away to shout, ooh, ah, up the ra. But whenever you're living through the terror of tit-for-tat murders happening weekly, sometimes daily, yeah, it doesn't sit well with me. And many people from Northern Ireland. So anyway, I thought I would do this podcast to educate others as well as myself because I don't know everything and... You know, I started this podcast thinking, I'll just do a very simple fool's guide to Northern Ireland. And it was two minutes into the conversation with Dr. Tomás Finn, 
who is absolutely fantastic. He really knows his stuff. Talking to this man was an honour. So two minutes into the conversation, I realised I could not do a fool's guide to Northern Ireland because it's too complicated. And to try to tie simple sentences to very complex issues is doing a disservice to one or both sides. And as Tomás will tell you, the whole thing was a zero-sum game. In order for one to further their cause, the other side had to lose. And that's inevitably the argument that John Hume made all his political life. And it led to Jerry Adams and the rest of the guys to sign up to this wonderful agreement. It's not perfect. And in many ways, bits of it have been made redundant, I guess particularly with the growth of alliance and how easy it has been for one side to collapse the whole government in Northern Ireland. Yeah, definitely it needs a rethink or another look at it. But as Tony Blair says, you cannot change it without cross-community support. Back to Tomas. I wanted to get somebody with a local connection. He's in Waterford, I think, or Wexford. Forgive me, Thomas, I forgot. Uh, but he's now a professor of politics in university in Galway. And I wasn't sure what I was going to get out of him. I maybe patronizingly thought that he wouldn't know his stuff as well because, you know, growing up in the South and all the rest. However, he knows his stuff. He just had facts and figures at hand. It was just amazing to have this conversation. And the balance, the balance that he does is wonderful. Now, in Northern Ireland, where I'll just talk very quickly about the flag in Northern Ireland, because not everybody knows this. It's green, white and orange. It's not green, white and gold. The green signifies Catholics or nationalists. The orange symbolizes the Protestants, the Unionists, the Loyalists, loyal to the Crown, loyal to the King. And the white in between is the peace. But everything in Northern Ireland ends up being orange or green. You name it. For example, masks. During COVID, they turned into orange or green. Abortion, orange or green. Same-sex marriage, orange or green. And it's really sad that's the way it happens but it is everything gets boiled and reduced down to this simplistic way of living up there but the problem is it's multifaceted and the other thing is you can be a Catholic and be a Unionist and you can be a Protestant and be a Nationalist so yeah Northern Ireland is just so complicated I encourage you to listen to the end you might not get it all however you might get a fair bit and you may be surprised at what you get. Tomás does a fantastic job, I think, of breaking it down to whatever level is required, but you might have to press pause and Wikipedia a few things, and you might go down a rabbit hole, and you might end up being a, a doctor in politics at the end of it. And 
if that's what happens, well, that's not a bad thing, is it? You say that knowledge is power, and, you know, I think it's great that Thomas has spent his time sharing with us his knowledge, because to understand Northern Ireland makes one a more sympathetic person to the situation up north. You know, as John Hume said, we're not a divided nation, we're a divided people. Anyway, without further ado, I bring you Dr. Tomas Finn. This is the Galway Podcast. Hello, I'm joined today with Tomas Finn, who is a lecturer of history in the University of Galway. Tomas, hello. Hello, Fender. Thanks very much for having me on today. Thank you very much for making the time. I'm very grateful of your assistance with this podcast. So, Tomas, I've noticed since I've, well, in all my travels down south, that there's uh, very little knowledge of the Northern Ireland situation in a republic. That's me being anecdotal. I've no hardcore data of this. So can you tell me, is my feeling a general consensus in the republic? And if so, why is there so little knowledge of the north down south? I would say you're quite accurate in what you say. The focus on, from a nationalist point of view was more on independence rather than perhaps ending partition. But when they considered Northern Ireland, it was, the focus was misplaced in terms of blaming Britain for creation and maintenance of partition. And obviously Britain has a, a role in all of this, but that didn't lead, that led to uh, not considering unionist concerns and fears. And, you know, there was one million unionists existing in Northern Ireland that were opposed to a united Ireland. You know, the sense of that lack of understanding and mistrust Collins and Craig met when they were the heads of governments in the early 1920s and their pact broke down because of misunderstanding and distrust. And the two prime ministers didn't meet again until the Taoiseach, Sean Lamas and Terence O'Neill met in 1965. So at that stage, there was an attempt to revisit and an attempt to start to try to understand why Ireland was divided. And that evolved into, you know, the consideration of the movement for civil rights. When Northern Ireland blew up, which it literally did, there was, you know, a huge surprise, not only in Ireland, in Britain too, you know. So this is something that was evident um, internationally, but obviously Irish people and nationalists were the ones that wanted to change things. So they did, they had to be the ones to try to grapple with that nettle and try to think of ways, to imagine ways to change things. Um, but they were, you know, the focus was on independence. You know, and it was only after that, when Ireland became fully independent with the Republic of Ireland Act 1949, leaving the Commonwealth, that there started to be a change. But then it was it was still very slow in the 1950s and 60s. But And it, it took time. You know, it wasn't until the Good Friday Agreement, as you know, that, that perhaps there is now more understanding of what, where the divisions are and what those divisions, you know, and attempts to resolve them. Lead to an agreed Ireland. An agreed Ireland, that's a contentious phrase already. <laughs> Whatever that means. Yeah. Whatever that means, and to whom. Um, so let's backtrack a little bit. I mean, I could, feel I could feel us getting into the weeds already there. A lot of people who don't have much knowledge about the Northern Ireland or even Irish situation. So let's start at the very start. How did Ireland get segregated? How far do we go back? Uh, well, go far back as you want to. 
okay, um, <laughs> you, you, uh, that's the challenge. And um, But Ulster was always, I suppose, historically the most Irish of Ireland. So how does it become the most English of Ireland? So you go back to the Battle of Kinsale, O'Neill's on O'Donnell's, the plight of the Earls in the early 17th century. And now suddenly there's a vacuum within Ulster. There was an attempt to, as Britain would see it, to, to civilise, um, or England initially, before the creation of Britain, um, but then Britain subsequently to civilise and one of the attempts to do so, and this is something that early modern books did do in terms of trying to seek plantations, civilized, literally planting people with civilized laws, English religion, English um, systems of governments. Those plantations in the 16th century arguably were ineffective, but what was the unusual thing about the Ulster plantation in the 17th century, it was largely effective but not completely so. In some ways, it was the worst of both worlds. It wasn't a complete failure. So, you know, native population did continue to live there, but they did continue to live in some of the lands. Uh, but it wasn't complete success. Settlers needed native population to work some of the lands, work some of the different jobs. So that divided society really emerges from the 17th century. Um and then, you know, different conflicts. You can think of the War of the Three Kingdoms, the 1640s, Oliver Cromwell coming to Ireland, attempts to stabilise Ireland and England and Scotland, and leading on to the Battle of the Boyne, those attempts to defend the Protestant interests. And that's what, you know, the Protestant establishment. And how all that evolved over the centuries, that Catholics being displaced and being put in more difficult positions. Um, but those divisions were already very strong. But in the 19th century, I suppose, when modern nationalism, nationalism and unionism and that sense of a divided Ireland really became a zero-sum game. If one entity, one group, nationalists or unionists, were seeking to win, the other side really seeking to, were seen to be the losers. So winners and losers in that sense. So those divisions were, already, as I say, very strong and they became even stronger than the 19th and 20th centuries. There were attempts at different times to resolve, try to conciliate, but broadly, I suppose, there was a lack of understanding on both sides in terms of trying to seek solutions. And in that sense, I suppose, you can see the Government of Ireland Act in 1920, which created partition uh, and, and the two states effectively, even though the southern state didn't quite come into existence until another treaty, the Anglo-Irish Treaty in 1921. But really, that settlement, the 1920 Government of which is again being superseded by the Good Friday Agreement. But that settlement in 1920 was really uh, a sticky blaster. You, you could see it as a, an attempt to resolve it, but really to push it away from a British perspective. These Ireland-Irish problems, this Irish question, which had become so dominant and so problematic in British politics, it was something that Britain was very happy to maybe move to the side and to consider, to feel that it was now resolved and satisfied. Okay, so... The partition has happened in, uh, officially in 1921. There are two different entities. What led to the Troubles? Maybe you can explain what the Troubles are, because our listeners may not know what they are. The Troubles were broadly a period of about 25 years of violence, of different... You could consider it in some ways a triangular conflict. Um, the Irish Republican Army, those those more radical, most radical nationalists, um, are willing to use violence to try to uh, promote their objectives to achieve their aims in terms of achieving Irish independence. Um, obviously, there was other nationalists and majority would seek to do similar objectives, but very different means in terms of using politics, using the constitutional politics um, to try to pursue their aims. 
but you have the Irish Republican Army, but on the other side, you could also have loyalists. And broadly, all this in the troubles in the late 60s, early 70s, it would have originated as an attempt, even the name of the major loyalist group. These are broadly the, the, the those that more ra- radical, traditional, perhaps even working class elements of unionist community trying to defend the constitution as they see the status quo, Northern Ireland as part of the United Kingdom. But the major organization among lo- loyalists was the Ulster Defence Association. Even that name, defence. They're trying to defend themselves. And equally, the IRA are trying to defend the nationalist communities. And this comes into a situation you have how does all this happen? You have two states that are really, in many ways, mirror images of them each other. Southern state, you know, reflecting a Catholic majority population, the constitution reflecting laws and constitution. All that consensus did break down in the post-World War II period, but the focus was again on the amount of independence, those objectives and strategies that were reflective of the desires of the majority of people within Ireland. Equally within Northern Ireland, the state that was being created was a state that reflected the wishes of the majority of the people, and that was the unionist population. So the unionist population was more concerned about making sure that there was a unity of among unions, that the unionist party, and that the party that was dominant for the first, for, from 1921 to 1972, when they were in government, the Ulster Unionist Party, they remained in government all that time, and keep that unification among not be divided, because there's always elements among any group and um, organization would have one view, more moderate view, more others more a hardline view, but among the Ulster Union's leadership to make sure that there wasn't any fracture, any divisions between those that are more liberal and those that are more hardline. And these tensions, I suppose, particularly in the 50s into the 60s particularly, and again inspired by international context of different movements, protests, organizations, particularly obviously what was happening in America in terms of the civil rights movement, but demands for nationalists that they would have equal civil rights. And um, you know, the type of state that it was effectively for nationalists the first 50 years was a kind of a cold house. They're not really welcome. They're not involved in the government. They're in a permanent minority. How do they affect change? If they take their seats in parliament, can they convince the government? If they withdraw from parliament, will they have even lesser influence? If they pursue politics, it, does that work? If they pursue a di- different strategy of using violence, is that going to work? And none of this was really working, I suppose, from a nationalist perspective. From a unionist perspective, whenever there was, and I suppose really within both um, groups, both unionists and nationalists, whenever there was individuals that would put forward more moderate proposals to try to reach across to the other community, they were often rejected and criticized within their own community. Because at different times, more liberal unions, more moderate figures did emerge. But they were often, again, highly criticized. You could see Terence O'Neill, sometimes seen as a more liberal figure, Prime Minister of Northern Ireland from 1963 to 1969. He did try in some ways grapple with this, although you could question to what extent. Is he more focused, again, on remaining, keeping the Unionist Party united against the voice, the emerging voice of somebody like Ian Paisley? And he's really key to all of this period in terms of, you know, how how to deal. <laughs> you know, can, Paisley's a fascinating thing. You know, um, how to classify, categorize him. He's the one that said, no, never, ever any cooperation with nationalists, because he doesn't trust them. That traditional view, nationalists are disloyal. I suppose, remember, from a union's perspective, up to 1998, 
nationalists do claim jurisdiction over the whole island in the 1937 constitution. So you can see the understand the perspective, but where is this, of course, going? If you know, they're they're in government. You cannot, you know, keep one side, one community, one major significant section of your population um, dis, 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 uh, disenfranchised effectively and um, for a long period of time. And that's effectively how the troubles, I suppose, did blow up. You have again the IRA, those are more radical nationalists, the loyalists. But also then emerging into this situation, um, the unionist government cannot handle the situation. And they're increasingly seen uh, from a nationalist perspective, and the police services particularly, and with the emerging civil rights movement, how the police respond to this. They're seen as increasingly partial rather than being maybe something closer to impartial. In some ways, they were viewed in that way in the 60s. But in the late 60s, when you have these different civil rights marches, as opposed to the Orange Order marches, which were, you know, much more prevalent. But when the civil rights marches were organized, did the authorities respond in an in a even-handed way? But a lot of time they're just responding to the pressures they're they're, they're, that are coming from Ian Paisley. Whenever there's a civil rights march, it was a deliberate strategy by Paisley to organize a counter-march, often on the same day, often on the same time, to really provoke attentions and clashes. And that's exactly what happens. And the police can't really handle this situation. So then you have a situation that the British Army have to be introduced. So the British government, for a long time, didn't have to pay any attention to what's happening in Ireland and in Northern Ireland, even though, of course, again, it's ultimately responsible for Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom. But they, now in 1969, they had no choice but to take take action and to take notice of what's happening. Well, something that often gets lost, uh, I found, in the wash of, of time, is that the civil rights movement was championing working class uh, on both sides. So uh, even still today, it's seen as a Catholic against the unionists, and it, and it was like that, but by and large. However, the, the one-man, one-vote situation, whereby a landlord got one vote per property. So it meant that the Catholics were generally renting and they didn't get a vote. So if you owned if you owned a house, you would get a vote and then so on and so forth. You, you probably know more about this than I do. But it also meant any unionist who was, who was working class, who was renting and not owning their own property, didn't get that vote either. So there was a bit of campaigning for both sides. Yeah. Do you want to elaborate a bit more about that? No, absolutely. I would agree with you. And it was certainly the intention of the Northern Ireland Civil Rights association to be a broad base and try to include um, all individuals but it was predominantly nationalists at the same time but there were those from a unionist perspective you know and, and from protestant and a trade union perspective as well um, the difficulty with all of this i suppose um, as they were trying to promote and become more active the concerns of those that were perhaps from a different not from a nationalist perspective um, from a unionist, um, and, and again, put it in the context of the year 1968, which internationally in many ways would be viewed as a year of revolution. You have events within Paris, Italy, America, of course, anti-Vietnam, and um, Prague, and the Russian tanks coming in. But um, in that sense, was this all driven? And it was very easy to paint it in this way, deliberately so, but also have those fears. Was this a deliberate 
revolution? Was it really Marxist? Was it driven by Republican elements? Republican elements were involved. In many ways, they were key to the, given an impetus to, to the merging of the civil rights movement. But those that were actually more dominant were arguably um, those that were more moderate. Well, if the moderates, this is, you know, you always have different tactics and strategies, how to promote any cause. The moderates would more be inclined, those led by John Hume, those, Ivan Cooper, for example, you know, a lot of leading members that would have become involved in setting up establishment and running up the Social Democratic Labour Party, the SDLP, the biggest party in Northern Ireland for the duration of the Troubles. But they would be more moderate, and whenever perhaps you know there was marches that were being particularly um, controversial, and um, they would be argue for you know caution in those. But then there was other groups, like for example, People's Democracy, and they're a very interesting group. In 1968, student-led emerged from the Queen's University Belfast, um, and they're led by involved people like Eamon McCann, you know, radical left, if you will, you know, in some ways, intellectuals, Bernadette Devlin, which is, you know, and again, incredible figure, the youngest female elected as member of parliament. But there are times, you can see something similar, in the, you know, in, again, in America, those that are willing to use tactics that are deliberately provocative. And people's democracy's tactics were to highlight this unionist regime is not capable of reforming. Whereas the moderates probably believe this unionist government will reform, will introduce these reforms. Now, you could argue, really, the unionist government only really responded when they became under pressure from the British government. But you know, these tensions in more modern elements within the Northern Ireland civil rights movement and more radical, and you can see them really being reflected in that march, that decision, early 1969, um, early 1st to the 4th of January, to march from Belfast to Derry. That march was very much inspired by the march from Montgomery to Selma in the US. So that four-day march. But and similar things happened in the US and in other countries, France, Italy. Whenever you have these attempts to provoke the authorities in many ways, um, the authorities came down very hard. But the situation was different in Ireland, in Northern Ireland, where it is a divided society. And those fears, you know, about bringing politics out into the street, where could this lead to? And these were the tensions and difficulties. I do think that element was there, but I think in many ways it was lost, or those fears from more Protestant working class. Somebody like Gregory Campbell is fascinating. He was he talks about himself being um, inspired by the civil rights movement, but then becoming really fearful in the late 60s that this is really just a Republican Marxist body. And then now he becomes quite a you know hardline individual leading involved in the Democratic Unionist Party. So you know, so these voices um, were there. Um, but how do you did national? You know, this is this is a question that goes back generations, centuries, <laughs> in many ways. How to reach across to the other community? Could people's democracy really convince working class Protestants that they are acting in their interests? In Northern Ireland, it was always very difficult to do that. Uh, and especially once those marchers led to riots, and that's what they did, uh, and clashes between march and a countermarch by loyalists, uh, and then that could lead to violence, which it did. Um, and once you bring in violence, it's, it's very difficult to, to really reach across to any to other side. Well, it's it's funny you keep saying about reaching across. You know that I'm thinking of that statue in Derry, where their two hands are almost touching and they're not quite. 
a, a few, well, I don't know how long ago it was, but the Peace Bridge was opened in Derry and I was taking a friend through there who's not from Ireland and the friend said to me, whenever they're building a Peace Bridge, you know it's not that peaceful. Which is very, very, you know, very telling, very uh, insightful comment to have made. I, I, and also, whenever we talk about the march, I'm thinking of it, two marches in particular. Well, so there's the Belfast Dairy one, which there is a flare up at Burntollet Bridge, and that footage is quite famous. So then, there's also the march. Hume, uh, he he wanted the violence to happen against him, and um, you know, I have family members who was in those marches um, with John Hume. And uh, he often said, anybody who's here to throw anything or to create any violence, go home now. The violence must be created against us in order for us to progress our situation. And I love the march that he did on the beach because what was happening was people were, uh, the, the, the media was, was uh, uh, colouring the marches as being riotous at the end. Uh, so what was happening was Hume decided, okay, let's do a march on the beach where we can't burn anything, where we can't lift, you know, well, they probably could lift rocks, but but again, there was, there was a violence created against them. And then the third march I'm thinking of is, of course, Bloody Sunday. Now, the Bloody Sunday uh, march, it led to 14 people being killed, 13 on the day, one person died afterwards, and, you know, uh, I don't know, 100, 200 people maybe uh, injured as a result of that being shot and so on. That was the biggest recruiting tool, arguably, for the IRA. And my question to you is this, what did the civil rights movement achieve and did the IRA and the reaction of Bloody Sunday and the over-recruitment towards the IRA from the result of Bloody Sunday's march, and did that actually have an adverse effect? Would it have been better if the IRA didn't exist? That's a big loaded question and we're going into, you know, what ifs, but how, do you, how are you going to answer that? It's it's very difficult to say because, um, again, um, the unionist government was very divided, you know, between those that were, you know, supporters of Terence O'Neill and those that were uh, more likely to support somebody like Bill Craig uh, and, and perhaps also Brian Faulkner. Faulkner is very interesting in all of this because, for much of his career, he was very hard, quite hardline, uh, and then of course he becomes the prime minister of during the Sunningdale Agreement, the first power-sharing government in, in in Northern Ireland. There were reforms being introduced, and they were addressing much most of the civil rights demands in terms of um, abolishing one man one or introducing, sorry, I should say, one man, one vote, abolishing the worst excesses of gerrymandering, where unionist uh, constituencies, uh, councils existed, even if there was nationalist majority in, for example, Derry. Also, you know, the worst excesses in trying to uh, employment, public and private employment, and um, f- uh, fair trade employment bodies. Some of these were introduced more by the British government after direct rule was introduced but those efforts, you know, were, you know, being, I suppose, rewarded and would it moved, was it, you know, in some ways, the British government and the unionists responding to pressures um, from an escalating security situation in some ways. It's, it's very difficult to divorce um, the civil rights movement and the effects of that from the, the effects of the impact of the early stages of the Troubles. They're all part of the one in many ways, but with, with how it evolves, you know, and whatever case you can make for both unionist, loyalist and 
um, IRA and I'm trying to understand why they emerge in terms of their fears and their concerns and trying to defend their own communities. They quickly escalated the situation um, from defense to offense. And that becomes much more problematic in terms of their attitudes and their act- activities in terms of targeting um, members from the, the, the other community. Do you miss a loved one that's passed on? Perhaps you miss their voice or their mannerisms. Perhaps you have questions that remain unanswered. Don't let that happen to your children or grandchildren. At Salt Hill Media, we can record your life story or that of a loved one for future generations. So when someone asks, hey, what was granny like? Or what was granddad like? You can point them to an interview and say, you tell me. We can tailor an interview to be as long or as short as you want it to be, all with professional recording equipment and post-production. You may think that your life is not worth documenting. Well, not according to your children or grandchildren. Record that life story before it's too late. Email salthillmedia at gmail.com or go to salthillmedia.com for more information. This is the Galway Podcast. Yeah. So let's fast forward then to the end of the Troubles and talk about the Good Friday Agreement, even its title, the Good Friday Agreement. I know that it's contentious because the Catholics call it, or the Nationalists call it that, and then the Unionists call it the Belfast Agreement because, you know, the religious connotations, etc. So how did that come about and what did it achieve? Again, you can see long-term and short-term um, reasons from this. You know, those early um, attempts to try to bring about peace or, or a power-sharing government. You know, Seamus Mallon, the senior member of the SDLP, who referred to the Good Friday Agreement as Sunningdale for slow learners, Sunningdale being the power-sharing government in 1973-74. So you already had that idea of a power-sharing between nationals and unions, and that's central to the Good Friday Agreement. You also had the Council of Ireland, which was North-South cooperation. And in 74, you know, the Unionist fears about the Council of Ireland, would this lead to a united Ireland? They're already, they're also very much there in the negotiations to the Good Friday Agreement. But those fears were appeased in some ways, I suppose, in 1998, um, especially for David Trimble, perhaps. And also the principle of consent. That's also there for the majority of nationals. The IRA do not accept this. It took, takes IRA and Sinn Féin until after the Good Friday Agreement to accept the principle of consent. Um, but you have other features that, you know, it's, it's, it's more complicated. Good Friday Agreement is much more than another version of, of, of Sunningdale. You, yes, it's principle of consent. Yes, it's the power sharing. Yes, it's the Council of Ireland. But it's also other features. The language is very inclusive, talking about the totality of relationships on these islands, not just north-south dimensions, also east-west dimensions. And they're obviously very important from a unionist perspective. East-west being, of course, uh, Britain and Ireland. Yes. Yeah. And the British Irish Council. And, you know, it's one of those ironies in some ways. Those, Those institutions are relatively underdeveloped compared to the North-South. So there's there's room for growth within the Good Friday Agreement to address concerns. And for the Good Friday Agreement and the institutions to evolve, the, the agreement contains 
um, mechanisms for reform and and movement if 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 there's agreement. Always now there has to be agreement for all these changes to happen. But other features of the Good Friday Agreement were arguably really important as well. Um, I'm thinking about the police, you know, and a, a commission to establish a police service that what became the police service of Northern Ireland. And that's been hugely successful, even if it's not perfect. But, you know, the RUC wasn't acceptive and it became increasingly unacceptable to nationalists during the Troubles. Um, but the police service of Northern Ireland is, has been accepted by both and um, by nationalists. And that's been huge, huge progress. Obviously, from a union's and from everyone's perspective, arguably, you know, it, it questions about whether we really trust the IRA. You know, the IRA had different ceasefires at different times. If the IRA are really serious about having a ceasefire, do they need weapons? So that question about decommissioning of their weapons, putting them beyond use, uh, and setting up a body to verify that they were being put on beyond use was all very important. And of course, you know, if we're going to have a real peace, then, and these are really difficult questions, political prisoners, if that's what their terms are, are they really criminals in terms of from Margaret Thatcher's language and going back to the hunger strikes? They had to be released, which they were, you know, and so, and, and both loyalists and and Republican prisoners have been released. And that's been very difficult for those legacy questions still remain with us for the victims and victims and families. Um, but the Good Friday Agreement has been, it, it, it highlights how brilliant individuals can be and creative and imaginative when they really set their minds to it. But, and, and Ireland can be very good at these things, and Northern Ireland, maybe Britain too, but in resolving crisis it's perhaps less good at planning to make sure these crises don't happen in the first place i mean john hume he often talked about we're not a divided land we're divided people and he talked about the the triangle of the division between the east and west as in britain and ireland and then you have the north and south you have northern ireland southern ireland and then internally north and north you know catholic against protestant so We've talked a lot about John Hume, but I, I realise there's quite a few people who are listening to this who might know much about him. So what did he do? What did he achieve? John Hume, I'd be a big admirer of John Hume. I've got an article on RT Brainstorm on John Hume, but he would always been very much, as you say, inspired by looking at different relationships, um, inspired by the European Union. You know, France and Germany had a, three wars within less than 100 years. Surely Irish people can um, find ways of cooperating and reconciling. And he was inspired by the European Union that way. But his ability not only to look at different ways to overcome the conflict, but also to internationalise the conflict. A member of parliament for um, in Westminster, a member of the European Parliament, his links to the Kennedys, to different American presidents and congressmen. And that American connect connection has and continues to be very important. President Biden is now coming um, to, to, to recognise the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. Um, but he, you know, did he make the ultimate sacrifice in terms of, well, putting his own life and maybe his own family's life at, at, at under threat? And he, they did, um, they were threatened by loyalists at different points, but also perhaps his political fortunes and his par fortunes of his party in his commitment to bring about a peace. 
and to bring Sinn Féin. He, he had a number of negotiations, and they were very controversial at the time. In 1993, for example, when there was an IRA bomber who was killed, and that bomber, and you know, this is not something the IRA did, but it was a, a mistake. It wasn't a suicide bombing or anything like that. It was a mistake. He was caught up, as were, you know, other, the targets were, were killed as well, nine individuals, but as well as that IRA bomber. When his coffin, um, his funeral happened, Jerry Adams was one of the individuals that was carrying his funeral. This was happening at a time we came public that became known that Jerry Adams was involved in negotiations with John Hume. And you can imagine the uproar that caused. Um, but Hume's commitment, and he made, you could say a huge gamble, but it was a gamble that thankfully paid off in terms of trying to make sure there was peace. It has come at a cost as well, you know, in terms of, well, it's difficult to know, but we still have a lot of difficulties from the Good Friday Agreement. The institutions, power sharing government, has only existed for about 40% of time since the Good Friday Agreement in 1998. Um, and those parties that are now the biggest parties, Sinn Féin Democratic Unionist parties, you know, are they really committed to... That's perhaps unfair to suggest, but you know they they were for a long time the more traditional parties, and they have become the bigger parties um, and replacing the more moderate parties, the SDLP and the Ulster Unionist Party. Um, so it's 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 a still a process, and and to try to you know work well, it's it's been hit by many different crises, but perhaps one of the most difficult ones is Brexit to fall out from that and it still you know it still remains to be managed you talk about that pressure where um, John Hume was under and then the what, what was the, the there was a shooting the trick-or-treat shooting I'd say Derry City I think it was a, a burial there and John Hume was thinking about packing it in and just not talking to Adams and it was actually at that funeral that somebody came up to him, I think it was the mother or maybe the wife of, of a close relative of one of the deceased, and said to him, don't stop talking to Adams. And he burst into tears. The pressure that the man was under is just immense, and we can't fathom that. I, as I say, I have family members who was involved in the, in the, in the civil rights movement, and they were with John Hume the whole time throughout. And what happened was one of my... My uncle said to uh, John Hume, you know, you know that if you deliver the peace process, you know that this could kill the SELP because Sinn Féin will have nothing, there's no fight in them. And they will become as popular as the uh, SELP and um, it could kill the party. And John Hume, I think he said the words effect, I wouldn't that be great? You know, so he's, he's the old the old style of putting the country before the party, you know, <laughs> which we don't see enough of anymore. That's what, for me, that's what made John Hume, in my eyes, the greatest politician of all time, is that he he, he was making these huge sacrifices with immense pressure and got on with the job. And it just, for me, it is so sad that he... He looked after his city, and I love the story that you know he had. Al I don't love that, if, that he had Alzheimer's, but I love that whenever he started really losing it uh, in terms of his, his ability to walk about and, um, and find his own way home, that the city actually looked after him. So he would be out in the streets, and people would just pick him up in the car and drive him home and say, "John, there you go. You're in there to your to your home." So um, yeah, is there anything else you want to say about that? 
Well, well, he. That's what my article kind of looks at in RTE. You know, a, a, a local boy that became global in many ways. You know, he was involved in the unsuccessful University for Derry campaign. He helped to set up the credit union movement in in Derry, the credit union, and then obviously he became involved in um, the SDLP, the setting up the SDLP, civil rights before that. Um, but yeah, I, I incredible life, and yeah, and I agree the sacrifice. And the ultimate sacrifice, but we also need to, I suppose, also give a lot of credit. You know, it's one of those controversial questions. When John Hume and David Trimble received the Nobel Peace Prize, um, it, it was Ed Maloney in his book on and um, the secret history of IRA who suggested that Jerry Adams should also receive the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, and you you need to give a lot of credit to, to um, both Martin McGuinness, for example, and 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 Ian Paisley. Looking back, that were you know there were great times. Those two worked so well together, and those parties have moved so far. Sinn Fein and and the Democratic Unionist Party. You can be critical how long it took, um, but I suppose where Malone, Ed Maloney at least was coming from that he that that Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness did bring the vast majority of those that were involved in the Republican movement with them. And that was a significant achievement in itself. Um, but it's just, from both sides, it's a, it's a shame that it took so long um, and, and so many lives were lost. But it's, you know, think, just recognising and you know, think, reflecting on the Good Friday Agreement, you know, people have estimated um, if the trends had continued in terms of violence and the number of deaths, we would have maybe another 2,000 people that wouldn't be here. Mm. You know, that, you know, about only uh, 145 or something like that, people have actually died in Northern Ireland in the last 20 years. Mm. And that's, you know, that, that, that's a remarkable difference. Mm. Yeah, and do you want to talk a moment about the leadership of David Trimble? Because me growing up in Northern Ireland, I saw Trimble as the guy who's walking defiantly, who made it through the Garvahi Road, who's triumphant. And it's very hard for me to take him, me as a young man, to be able to take him seriously. But now I've been, obviously, whenever when everybody dies, you look at them with rose-tinted glasses, and I'm hearing of the pressure that that man was under also, because he, you, you rightly said, that, you know, it, it did take a, a, arguably too long a time. And he, but the thing is, he did bring people with him in the end. And again killed his party for, you know, the DUP became the UP, if you like. So um, do I talk a little bit about Trimble? Because he did win the, P the, the Peace, Nobel Peace Prize along with Hume, yeah. I, and um, where you could say Hume's life was, um, his award was probably for that recognition for his role in the peace process and creating that peace process. Trimble's recognition comes for the fact that he negotiated the agreement and he did sign that agreement against a lot of hostility. But Trimble is a fascinating individual himself, absolutely. You can go back to the, the, the attempt after Sunningdale, it was the Constitutional Convention in 1975. Trimble was involved in those negotiations, as were attempts in Paisley less so. There was an attempt to talk about internal power sharing. Would Individuals like Ian Paisley and perhaps Trimble, to elect. he was a lawyer at this time, so an advisor, and he's an admirer of Bill Craig, and uh, he's involved in advising Bill Craig, who was very hardline. He'd make statements, he made statements about liquidating your political enemy. Like something like Trimble perhaps wouldn't share necessarily, but he was involved in a lot of hardline movements, but he was willing at least 
You can see this from the late from that period, willing to consider power sharing. So he he has been portrayed. You're quite right as, as a figure as quite hardline, quite traditional. But he always had that element of tremble, willing to consider power sharing and willing to do deals. And ultimately, he did that deal again when he once he made up the, his mind that this was a deal that was worth doing. And I think from a union's perspective, there was a lot of benefits um, in terms of, you know, finally, Articles 2 and 3 were going to be revoked. That was huge. Re-establishing the Stormont government, that was, again, a huge thing that, you know, the Stormont government hadn't existed since 1972. Okay, they had to accept a power sharing. But it was very difficult to convince a lot of unions, especially on the question of political prisoners. You know, those, you know, as they would have seen them, individuals that had killed family, loved ones, and had the IRA, again, you know, they killed over uh, 50% of, around 50% of people during that, that period. And people need to remember that. It's the IRA, the paramilitary organizations who are much more responsible for the, the number of deaths within the, during the Troubles rather than the, we, we might know better or in, in, in terms of those um, atrocities that were conducted by the authorities in the British armies, which they were terrible. But we do still have to remember, as I say, it's the paramilitaries that were responsible for the vast majority of deaths. So from a unionist background, it is, that's a hard, from anyone's, you're, you're saying you've killed my family, my brother, my sister, my mum, my dad. You've wrecked my life. Now you can go out and be free. That's a hard thing to do. But again, you know, both Hume and Trimble made that decision. Peace is worth it. And thankfully, they did make that decision. Because, you know, otherwise, where would we be? Well, and I, I should flag that uh, even though they're able to walk the streets, if, they're, if they were caught doing anything naughty, <laughs> they were straight back in to do the rest of their sentence. So, um, but the, you're 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 absolutely right. You know, the, to have done that uh, deal, I think Trimble and Trimble was under immense pressure, and he went against the DUP, who were who were obviously doing the more hardline approach. So that was even on his side. You know, an awful lot of pressure there too. Um, I was listening to an interview last week with uh, Jerry Adams on BBC. And Jerry Adams was talking about the difference between the, saying the Good Friday Agreement and Michael Collins, uh, him saying the Independence Agreement. So it's, uh, the famous quote is that Michael Collins says, I feel like I've just signed my death warrant. And Adams was asked about that and he said, well, the difference is, is that I consulted with the guys. He didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, fair. Well, it was easy. It's easier to consult in 2023 or 1998, as it was obviously, um, than it was in 1921. But you could make a case a lot for a lot of things. You know that Eamon de Valera should have been there in the first place. You know, negotiating. Yeah, it was really important. You know, we couldn't have had an agreement really without Sinn Féin IRA. Whatever you'll say about the Democratic Unionist Party, I do agree with you that it was, it's been incredibly diff, it was incredibly difficult for the UEP because of the DUP were remaining outside. And now the DUPs, their concerns now are because of the tra- traditional unionist voice and, uh, and other loyalist elements that are, you know, in some ways still being um, um, quite critical of those that are more now more moderate than them. And equally, you know, on the Sinn Féin side, it's, the, you know, they're concerned about dissidents or other elements that, you know, will they continue to snipe at them in some ways? And, you know, that's a bad choice of words, perhaps. <laughs> um, 
But you can be critical of Jerry Adams and Sinn Féin in other ways. You know, critical moments and, and really affect Ireland and Northern Ireland. And still Sinn Féin refuse to take their seats in Westminster. They're still abstaining from Parliament at Westminster. And that's a crucial difference still with the SDLP. SDLP do take their seats. But at the time of really critical votes um, on the Brexit questions and the UK Parliament, Sinn Féin were not there. You know, they were not, their voices weren't uh, heard or nor were their votes being counted because they still refused to take their seats. And there's, you know, there's little logic as far, you know, whatever rationale you could have for not taking your seats in the past. And I can, I do understand our Sinn Féin's um, reasons for doing this. Uh, but today, you know, this is arguably more, much more, and especially when you see what's, you know, the costs in terms of Brexit and the effects this has had on Northern Ireland and Ireland. This is, this is a problem. But it's rarely discussed, Phil. You know, when Sinn Féin are active at this, they just push it aside. I think the argument there could be that if they were to do that, then the dissidents would have even more ammunition, for want of a better word as well. Uh, so it's like parties are always uh, being subsumed or in danger of being subsumed by other more extremist uh, parties. So you have the Brexit party and uh, and so on. And then you have Sinn Féin having done the, the same to SDLP. Now, if Sinn Féin were to take their seats in, in, the, in the UK Houses of Parliament, then, yeah, I could see dissidents using that as propaganda to advance their cause in a bloody and horrific way. So... Maybe I'm still maybe I'm still happy enough that they don't uh, take their seats. You know, if they stand up to be elected and say we're not going to take your seats, so you know it's democracy, arguably that that they don't. Absolutely, and um, yeah, and the attempted on the recent uh, attempt on life on the recent RUC officer is a reminder. Um, if we if we need to be reminded that um, there's those that are willing to use force and violence. To get their point across. So, despite the successes of the Good Friday Agreement 25 years ago, Northern Ireland actually holds the record for the longest peacetime period a country has spent without a functioning government. Why? Um, yeah, it's it's not being smoothed by any um, stretch of the imagination, especially after the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, you know, there was still difficulties in terms of convincing both. Sinn Féin, who had signed the agreement, but also especially the Democratic Unionist parties. Those two parties became the biggest parties in their own respective communities, the National Unionist communities in the early 2000s. So there had to be another agreement, the St. Andrews Agreement in 2006. And up to that point, up to that agreement, um, a lot of the time power sharing government didn't exist. But that agreement helped to bring um, about um, both the, a commitment by both Ian Paisley and the Democratic Unionist Party and Sinn Féin and Martin McGuinness, that they became the first minister and the deputy first minister. The agreement basically on the lines that Sinn Féin will support the police service of Northern Ireland and the Democratic Unionist Party would support and be involved, uh, commit to power sharing once um, the IRA put their weapons beyond use, decommissioned their weapons. So that agreement on decommissioning and the police service of Northern Ireland was hugely important. More recently, Brexit, I heard Bill and Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton referring to Brexit as a dagger at the heart of the Good Friday Agreement. And actually, he'd been amazed that the Good Friday Agreement actually survived this. 
Um, and, and whatever about Brexit, that, it, you know, arguably unintentionally so, but it did go at the core of the Good Friday Agreement when people can see themselves as being Irish, British, or whatever they wish to be. Now you have to be, you know, um, decide, make these decisions. And that's one of the things about the Good Friday Agreement. It's made, you know, it, it, it accepted, it allowed people to be comfortable in whatever form of identification they wish to have. But Brexit has raised these constitutional political questions and it made it much more difficult, especially from a unionist perspective. Um, and that's why the government, power sharing government, it doesn't exist at the moment. The fallout from Brexit, different attempts to try to resolve this. The latest attempt, the Windsor framework, arguably is, has been, you know, has there's huge progress in addressing unionist concerns there. But again, what you, your point is very well made um, in terms of um, those that are um, more hardline, you know, not willing to accept this. And divisions within the de- perhaps the Democratic Unionist Party themselves. Again, that all going back to whatever the, u- the major Unionist Party is, their c- determination um, to make sure they remain united themselves and being fearful that there will be a split within their own political party. So I think that's what we see at the moment. But the nationalists equally, you know, when that controversy over renewable energy, cash for ash scandal, you know, they also withdrew from the parliament. So there's been different issues um, over the last 25 years. And however imperfect um, the Good Friday Agreement is, it's much better um, um, situation uh, and is a remarkable, it has resulted in a remarkable transformation within Northern Ireland. But it, it will need to evolve, you know, this um, and how the even the terms first minister and deputy first minister, it makes it difficult, you know, the use of those terms for whatever party is the second party. Um, and also in terms of if alliance party, that um, party that is not, doesn't designate itself as either unionist or nationalist, if the, if the Alliance Party does continue to grow, it seems unlikely. But, you know, if they could become second or first, what happens then in terms of will they be the first or deputy first minister? So there needs to be ways to, I suppose, reimagine the Good Friday Agreement. But it is, again, very difficult to achieve agreement because any any there has to be a cross-community agreement for any change to the institutions and the provisions of the agreement. And just to clarify, um, the difference between the Deputy First Minister and the First Minister is actually just a title. They actually hold exactly the same power. And one can't uh, send a letter without the other one's signature. So it's it's, it's a bit of a nonsense title in many ways. Yes, absolutely. They're legally equal um, in every respect. Um, So, yeah, um, it was, I suppose, in some ways it was more symbolic. From a, certainly from perhaps from a union's perspective, that they were still the more important position and they still had the top position, even though, again, those two positions are not in any way um, subordinate to one another and they're completely equal. Um, but now it's one of those ironies, is this making it more difficult for the Democratic Unionist Party to accept a Sinn Féin first minister? I think the DUP would accept this when it comes down to it. Um, but it's it's if they can find a way to res- restore the power sharing, maybe they will with time. I, I'm 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 an optimist at heart, so I do t- t- hope and I think that they probably will 
good time find a way you should move up north so we need more of you up there <laughs> I, I love the metaphor well i don't know if i love it or not but I, i've heard the metaphor and i maybe sort of smirk that um it's akin to Sinn Féin and dup are playing football and then once uh dup start losing the game they take the ball away so that's in effect maybe what we have at the minute that uh that is worthy to go into government at the moment that uh, Michelle O'Neill from the Sinn Féin would be the first minister. Yeah, um, you could see it like that, but the DUP would say these are very serious issues and they would also point to times the Sinn Féin have um, um, forced a collapse of the power-sharing administration. Um, so a lot of it's all these things in politics and life are based on good relationships. And the relationships between the um, the senior members of the Democratic Unionist Party and Sinn Féin are not, unfortunately, what they were when Ian Paisley and Martin McGuinness um, famously became known as the Chuckle Brothers in Northern Ireland. They, you know, it was incredible. These two individuals, who would have really hated each other, um, had such a good personal relationship. That's something that's been lacking in Northern Ireland since those two, unfortunately, are no longer with us. But... Time helps to resolve a lot of things. Maybe it just takes a little bit more time. So how do you see the involvement of the Good Friday Agreement taking place? Oh, wow. Um, I, can, I can see... Well, Alliance is very interesting. They've maximised their vote and in, in terms of their number of seats. They've done really well, probably to, to, at, at the cost of other others, if you will, the people before profit and other parties who aren't willing to designate themselves as either unionists or nationalists. How far will they continue to grow? You know, this, you know the, it, the census and other factors seem to, and the, you know, since we have the youth perhaps are, are more disillusioned with traditional unionist and nationalist politics, it seems that it, likely the lines will continue to grow, but whether they'll ever really likely to replace either Sinn Féin or Democratic Unionist Party as the biggest parties in, their, in, in Northern Ireland, I think is unlikely, at least um, in the short term. Um, but I can see more support for some of the reforms the Lions parties have suggested. Whenever reforms have happened and agreements have happened, it's been enough of a recognition that it's in whatever side, it's in their interest to make this agreement happen. At the moment, Sinn Féin is not, it doesn't seem to be in Sinn Féin or Democratic Unionist Party's interest to make this happen. But both those parties will have to find a way at the same time. You know, it, they, they need to win over people to whatever their, their, their perspective. The Democratic Unionist Party need to convince people that Northern Ireland should be part of the United Kingdom, especially whenever there's no power sharing government. When Northern Ireland is seen as ineffective, it doesn't work. If that continues in the medium, short or medium medium term, certainly, you could see more people maybe not support Sinn Féin or the SDLP, but support the Alliance Party. And then the Alliance Party might be faced with a decision whether they should support a border poll on what stance they should take on that question, then in, in, in question of unifi possible unification of Ireland. Equally, Sinn Féin, you know, you know, it's all very well. It's all very well for any party to represent, which they do have to. I understand this. They do have to represent their own core constituents, uh, and that's their, their, understandably, their priority. Um, but equally, you know, Sinn Féin talk about they want a United, United Ireland. 
how if they really want to unite Ireland, you have to convince, persuade people in that middle, especially that it, they, that that's in their interest to have a united Ireland, and you have to be able to point to and say what are the what a new Ireland will be like. You know, I've I've heard I haven't heard that much from Sinn Fein about what a new Ireland. They talk about wanting a united Ireland. They talk about wanting a border poll, but I haven't heard that much about how different a new Ireland will be to what Southern Ireland is currently. You know, of course they have different policies to 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 other parties, but they have to be more imaginative and creative. And I do take your point. Yeah, of course there's those that are they have to take into account those that are more, you know, um, if you will, diehard. But, you know, at some point, these questions, maybe a lot of this would just kind of, maybe it just takes time. Maybe that's the calculation both DEP and uh, Sinn Féin are, t- are taking. But um, but at, at some point, you do also have to kind of um, find a way, again, to persuade people if you really are committed that, you know, this is the best future for them. Interesting that you used United Ireland and New Ireland in the same sentence. I think Sinn Féin are, are more towards the United Ireland side and and the argument is maybe it should be more New Ireland. So I'm going to ask you in a second about what a New Ireland might look like. Was centralised or uh, federal or whatever? But before that, I've just realised we haven't been talking about a very important lady in all of the peace process, which was, of course, the Secretary of State of Northern Ireland at the time, uh, Mo Molum. I mean, I, I could also talk about John uh, John Major, who did a lot of the speed work before Tony Blair came in, and for me, he was a, a bit of an unsung hero. But Mo Molum, she, what's very telling to me is that she, she was going into the prisons, going eyeball to eyeball to these um, uh, terrorists or, or, or political prisoners, whatever you want to call them, and uh, negotiating the deal. And then after the, the Good Friday Agreement was delivered, she then spent the next, her dying years campaigning for integrated education in Northern Ireland. And, you know, growing up in Northern Ireland as a, as a Catholic, whatever, I, I didn't meet, a, I didn't have a Protestant friend until I was 16. And I only met this guy because he was the singer of a band that I joined, you know, a uh, rock band, not a not a Piper's band. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm going to ask you now, what does a New Ireland look like? Uh, so that's just to, to zoom out a little bit about the integrated education, unless you want to talk about that. Um, I, I would agree with it. You know, there's been many stages of progress and you can go back. First of all, what you're mentioning about John Major, and that was... The agreement, the Downing Street Declaration in 1992, was remarkable in itself. When the when a conservative government, you know, obviously traditionally more sympathetic with unionism, but they agreed that not Britain has no selfish or strategic interest in Northern Ireland. That's remarkable in itself. And you can go back to World War Two and Ireland being neutral and whether Ireland was still neutral or not. But Ireland was not a member of NATO. And, you know, all this. Um, and still isn't, um, even though you know it is now more obviously aligned on the Western side. But again, that was a remarkable statement to make. And the, from the Irish government, a Fianna Fáil government as well, you know, again, traditionally more sympathetic to nationalists, um, saying that recognizing the principle of consent. So that was a hugely important landmark 
And you can look at other landmarks at different points. But I agree with you a lot with Mo Moland as well. She was, in, she had an informality and a, a, a determination about her and a courage. And she was, you know, received horrendous abuse as well. And largely because she was a woman and misogynist attitudes. Um, but she was very determined and found ways um, of talking to individuals and bringing people together, which was hugely important in helping. Because, uh, you know, it wasn't as if everyone signed a Good Friday Agreement, then they all just got on together, because they didn't. We know that, you know. And it was, it was especially those early years. It could have fallen apart. And it could still fall apart, but I think now I think I'm hopeful they will get back. <laughs> Integrated education is still very slow. It's They have made progress, uh, but it's... But, there is progress in terms of, you know, talking about political prisoners early on. A lot of them are really involved in community as community um, liaison officers and welfare officers. And there are hugely important roles in trying to make sure a peace that people like, that people meet each other from across the other community. And those efforts are are, are so important. You know, th- these are the reasons why pe- young people are not being shot or not being um, holding guns or shooting, you know, and that's that's hugely significant. Um, I can't remember your other question. Uh, what would a future Northern Ireland look like? So federal versus, um, uh, well, you go ahead. Well, Eamon de Valera used to say that it would always be a federal Ireland when he talked about a united Ireland. So that idea is not new, but you know, de Valera didn't really obviously understand what the union's concerns, nor did he really choose to try to do so. But there, I know Leo Varadkar talked about that, the recent... United Ireland conference in the, that body that, that was held in 2022 is obviously a body that's committed to supporting United Ireland. Uh, but Leo talked about a shared future as well, you know, some similar, but he also talked about whether Northern Ireland would still have its own parliament, would Northern Ireland still have its own education system, Northern Ireland still have its own health system. So these are all, you know, whether a new flag, you know, whether we, we should have a new national anthem. These are all, there's so much we need to think about before I would suggest we have talk about having a border poll or anything like that. Who was really interesting as well was, wasn't it Jimmy Nesbitt, um, the actor who talked there, and he t- he talked about a union of Ireland rather than United Ireland. United Ireland sounds very traditional. It sounds like something that's been, in some years at least, being imposed. You have to think about a way of reimagining this as way as a way of being having consent and consensus not where if you could say the government of ireland act was a union solution and trying to design to make sure there was a union's majority you can't now go into the future and just have a solution that is a national solution you know you're just making the same mistakes again if you do, if we go down that path if people are really con- determined to have a united ireland there's been talk about going to church halls orange order halls talking about you know and he's right you know this is what has to really happen but i, I don't know what a united you know, one thing ireland has done well is the citizens assembly and i know mary lou Macdonald has argued for a citizens assembly to look at the question of a united ireland but again yeah we could go down that path but i don't know if we're there yet i i i think we certainly we need to see power sharing back up and running and i think we probably need to see it back up and running for a, a period you know we can't just rush into it after re-establishing the institutions in the future that could be a pat but there's no there's no guarantees that northern ireland will ever get to a place that is 50 plus one you know you could say the catholic population you know it is the largest now 
but it's still much less than 50%. And and whether they'll ever get to 50%, um, it's you know we don't we don't know what route, you know how. And a lot of that other, especially, if we try to really try to identify how alliance parties, for example, it seems more likely that a lot of them would be more likely to, to be support a union and the status quo rather than a united. So you know, there's a I think there's a lot of ground for for any of this. But again, though, you have to be very imaginative and creative with the solutions if if they're going to convince. And also, you know, I, I was I've been reading different things about this. I know as John Fitzgerald, the economist, talked about the effects of a United Ireland in terms of um, how much subsidy, how much money goes from the UK. You know, again, could Ireland afford this? If Northern Ireland ceases to be part of the United Kingdom, he was suggesting there would have to be, uh, there would be a considerable reduction in the standard of living in Northern Ireland. And there would have to be a hike in taxation and or a cut in public expenditure. Now, others have said that's not necessarily the case. They've pointed to shared benefits from the economies of scale on the island. It's contradicted then by the idea that you should Northern Ireland have autonomy and devolution within the future structures, whatever they are. Um, so I, I, I think, there, you know, if you look at it in different ways, Scottish independence, you know, the concerns about Scottish independence, a lot of them are economic concerns about leaving a greater union. That greater union used, used to be the EU, but now it's the UK. Um, so it's still the same questions. But Northern Ireland, I suppose, has, because of its history, doesn't have those concerns about a hard border on the island, whereas Scotland probably does with England, if it ever perhaps becomes independent. That would even have to be considered. You know, if we have a, a united Ireland, what would the future relationship be with Britain? You know, would there be a border again? We'd have to consider, go back to that, that question as well. So I don't know. I was talking to my father about this. I said, is there any questions you, you think I should ask uh, Tomas? He says, ask him what does he think about 50% of the doll having union seats? <laughs> I, I arguably that would go against democratic principles, but you could certainly make a lot of seats on the Shannon, and maybe you could give the Shannon more powers. But I, I would tend to think that a Northern Ireland Parliament should continue to exist in the, in this situation as well. But you could do both of those. I think you should, you know, make all these reforms or consider them all. Um, and again, all of this will have to be done, I think, with, in, with the consensus of unions, and that will be. That would be a long process to try to get their agreement to any of this, obviously. Well, it's funny, I never heard uh, James Nesbitt's comment that Sinn Féin should be going into orange holes, and I think it's fantastic. I, I heard there that Tony Blair said recently that whatever way the situation in North Ireland, you know, talking about voluntary coalition, whatever way that uh, is changed, it's got to have cross-community support. Because if you don't have that, that's the core of everything. If you don't have that, then it's you're 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 lighting a powder cake. He didn't. That's my words. Yeah. No, I and I agree with that absolutely. I'm not sure Jimmy Nelson was, was talking, but James Nelson was talking about Sinn Fein doing this. But this is what he was effectively um, suggesting. Absolutely. Um, um, but yeah, everything has to be done with cross community agreement. Absolutely. Um, right now, it's difficult to see that happening, but. Um, if you put it in the longer term, always think of the longer term context and history. Northern Ireland has evolved so far, you know. Uh, so all the all is possible, you know. Um, we we would we couldn't have imagined twenty five years of relative peace, you know, thirty years ago. 
that would be just unimaginable. I don't see the leadership right at the moment. In one sense, that's not a bad thing. You know, the normalcy has come that Sinn Féin are now becoming bigger parties all the time, or so it seems. So maybe we don't need the same leadership as we used to have with Tony Blair, perhaps Bertie O'Hearn, John Hume, absolutely, David Trimble as well. But, you know, their leadership was needed because there was huge opposition to making this agreement happen. Um, Now it's... You know they are they're they're not maybe in government obviously they're not in government but they are they're they're talking at the same time you know in in, in different ways the younger generation want peace and they want people to work together that's you know again part, the parties will have to get votes and that's that's the whole you know continue uh, something that you, we talked touched about this earlier which is John Hume he's a big champion for bringing business into Northern Ireland as well because his argument was if people were going to work in the morning they didn't have enough time to throw petrol bombs the night before uh, so I'm hoping that the that the Windsor framework will bring more employment to Northern Ireland more businesses will set up there it'll prosper in its own right and it may well as you say you know be its own um uh, decentralized zone and uh, be uh, you know a little Singapore of, of or Hong Kong whatever you want to call it. Hong Kong is probably a better um, a metaphor of of these islands and with all that it might be unnecessary to have this discussion for another twenty five years but I, I dare say it'll bubble up very often over the next twenty five. It's never too far from the surface. The Northern Ireland government can change and reduce its corporation tax rate, uh, but it's chosen not to do so. It's at 19%. And again, that's completely reflecting their view, that um, the unionist view, that they should not diverge from Britain and they should be of the same standards and same um, taxation and uh, access to the British market. But compared to the Irish tax rate, it will it is going up to 15%, but for obviously a long time it was at 12.5%. So I don't know, again, how that will be negotiated or, or not, but um, Invest Northern Ireland uh, and tourism boards, they, are, they work very closely together. Electricity, there's now, you know, different bodies within Northern Ireland are now in, have invested in the southern market. So there's been huge cross-border cooperation in different areas. It was always possible. And it, it happened, cooperation, even be, Terence O'Neill and Sean Lamassam when they met in 1965. But it does need that impetus from leaders. You can have cooperation on a private level among businesses, and they are doing it. And you did have it for the first decades in terms of electricity. Lock Earn, um, Hydroelectric, that was there, and different railways. But a lot of it, you need that impetus and leadership from the leaders and Taoiseach, prime ministers, um, and the Irish and British governments also continuing to work together very closely. That's one of the lessons as well. When the Irish and British governments are out of sync, that's when a lot of the difficulties in Northern Ireland re-emerge. I'm thinking of another thing, which is if there's something that breaks this old given us is the awareness of the danger of lack of planning for after such a constitutional change. So I, I think Scotland's already planning and looking into this all of, with a lot more detail. Let's have a more grown up conversation about all of this. What would it look like? What would the flag be like? And I love that John Hume quote 
you cannot eat a flag, or that's what it's actually is. His father said that, wasn't it? You cannot eat a flag. So whatever is flying on top of a building and how, for how often, how many days, does it really matter? You know, and and something else that came to mind is no news is good news. That's never more true than it is for Northern Ireland. Yes, no, absolutely. Um, but they still will have to have um, at some point um, the Democratic Union spark. It could be that they'll just kind of fudge the Windsor framework and the whole question of price. So I can see that maybe happening and then just kind of coming to a view that the power share needs to be reestablished. Because ultimately, I do think um, the Democratic Unionist parties want devolution to happen, but uh, but it just might take uh, a few months for them to be able to say this or commit to it publicly. Just thinking back, like, so it's hard to read. You know, it was Jeffrey Donaldson and it was Arlene Foster who left the Ulster Unionist Party. They were the opponents, the real, they left and right at the end, instead of signing the Good Friday Agreement, they walked out in David Triple and the Ulster Unionist Party. They obviously then obviously joined the Democratic Unionist Party. So when it comes down to, I do think Jeffrey Donaldson probably is once the evolution, uh, but I'd say there's there's real splits within unionism right now. That's that's part of the problem. Let's hope the new news continues, eh? Uh, Thomas, I'm I'm really grateful of your time. Looking at the clock here, and uh, I, I, where we've gone gone probably a bit over than we we well we have done than we planned. But um, it's been such a for me a very interesting conversation. I've really loved it. Um, I'm very grateful of your time. Thank you very much. It's been very interesting. Absolutely, really enjoyed it. So, Tomas, thank you very much again for your time, and I wish you all the best. And I'll look forward to seeing you in Galway sometime soon. That sounds great. Cheers, now. Cheers. Slangafoil. All the best. This has been a Solid Hill Media original podcast and production. <laughs>